This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. Take your Bibles and open them up to Psalm 37. Psalm 37, as we continue walking through the Psalms uh, this morning before this service, I went outside to the uh, pavilion. We have a ton of college students out there, and I was able just to see them and greet them and uh, welcome them today, so I'm so thankful that they're watching with us this morning. But I'm really looking forward to the good word that God has for us. It seems like every week, as we just kind of walk through the Psalms, the Lord's setting the agenda Every week, it just seems like God puts us exactly where we need to be, and I needed this word from the Lord this week, and I believe if that's true, then you're going to need it as well. Psalm 37 feels a little bit different than the Psalms that we've been looking at so far. We've been talking about how most of the Psalms so far are heart cries to God, meaning they contain the words, O Lord. And when you see those words, O Lord, it shows us that the psalmist is crying out out of an overflow in his heart, is saying, Lord, here is what I long for, and here's what I need, and here's what I want. And all of those psalms have felt that way, but not Psalm 37. Psalm 37 feels incredibly different. It feels more like a proverb than it does a psalm. It feels like a bunch of isolated statements given by a wise older man, which we know that when David writes this, because of verse 25 in this chapter, he is older. It seems like out of the abundance of just kind of his experience in his life, he's just saying, let me give you some thoughts about life and the way to live. It also feels a little bit like David's greatest hits. There are some great verses in Psalm 37. Almost everyone I've talked to and I've said I'm preaching Psalm 37, they'll say, well, I love this verse and this verse. You've got verses like verse four, where it says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Verse five, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. Verse 25 is familiar. David says, I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. So it seems that what we have here is just a bunch of isolated statements, but the reality is that's not the case. That all of this is working together to communicate something very important for us. And one of the reasons we know that David wants us to not only read this, but to understand it and to meditate it and get it deep in our soul is because Psalm 37 is what is called an acrostic psalm. What that means is that it starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and every single verse begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, there's a number of psalms that way, and there's a couple of reasons this happens. First of all, sometimes the author does it just for poetic beauty. God cares about things like poetic beauty. God cares about beauty simply because beauty manifests his glory. God cares about creativity because creativity says something to us about the creativity of our God. So that matters. But more importantly than that, these Psalms were mostly written this way to help us memorize them as a device that would help those who first heard this Psalm to be able to go, okay, A is this and B is this and C is this. Because most of us, including myself, are not really good with the Hebrew alphabet, it's not that helpful for us in that way. But the truth is, and it reminds us that when David wrote this, what he was thinking is this. I'm gonna write this in such a way that the next generation would hear the wisdom from this old man. And they might know how much this matters, and I might give it to them in such a way that they could easily memorize it and get into their souls. 
And I'll say this, the more I read Psalm 37 over and over and over and over all 40 verses and tried to understand it, the more I came to realize just how important this was for us and the reason he wrote it that way. There's a lot of glorious things in this chapter, but the truth is, is that David is reflecting upon this question. Why is it that it seems that the righteous are suffering while the wicked are prospering? Have you ever felt that? I look around the world and Lord, it just looks like the righteous are suffering. They don't have enough and their, their lot in life is difficult. And here's the wicked over here ignoring the things of God and they're getting all of the blessing. But God, it doesn't make sense to me because you have said that the righteous would be blessed and the wicked would not. But God, it doesn't look that way to me. But even beyond that, what David seems to be doing is he's reflecting on the futility of expending your emotional energy, comparing yourself to other people. The futility of expending your emotional energy day after day, looking at someone else and wishing you were like them or wishing you had what they had. And he's not just showing us the futility of this, he's showing us the danger of this. That there seems to be something common in all of us and I'm thankful to see it was common in David as well because David is talking about his own struggles of comparing himself to others and looking at others and wondering why they have more than he has and why they appear to be more blessed than he is. And all of us having this experience will find some incredible comfort and encouragement from Psalm 37. What David is revealing to us here is not simply how to answer that question, which we need to know how to answer, but going deeper into our heart and really helping us to understand how is it that we walk faithfully with the Lord Jesus Christ, pursuing him, growing in Christ's likeness with the understanding that for a believer, much of the best things we get, we don't get in this life, but we get in the next. And so we're watching a bunch of people who seem to be getting all this great stuff in this life and we're wondering why they're getting this into which the Lord is saying, well, hold on, there's more to the story than it appears to be. There is something better for those who hold on. David is teaching us to be free from that comparison trap of wanting to know why someone else has more than us and then just settling into the reality that there is a way for the people of God to live in which they are stored up incredible treasures on earth for future glory. Now Psalm 37 is made up of 40 verses. Now I read these verses over and over and what I came to realize is this, is all 40 of those verses, including way more commands than you normally get in a Psalm, all 40 of those verses can be summarized in verses one through four. So I did this, don't do this while I'm preaching, but what I did is I wrote out every verse in Psalm 37 and then I took a piece of paper and pointed how every one of those verses go to something that is said in Psalm one through four. So what that means is Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 37, one through four is basically a little glimpse of the rest of the Psalm. So I'm gonna read and focus on the first four verses and then show you how the other verses point to the truths that are there. So let's look together and read as I read Psalm 37, verses one through four. Fret not yourself because of evil doers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend or cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So David asking this question, 
What do I do with this perception that the wicked are prospering and the righteous are suffering even more so? What does this teach us about the way to cultivate a life of godliness in the midst of a worldly society and live for the next life instead of this one? And David gives us four commands to help us with that. I want to plead with you, knowing that this was intended to be a practical, helpful psalm to write these things down. The first one is this, is that we fight the pull of worldliness. We fight the pull of worldliness. That's the point of verse one. Verse one is a call to guard our hearts against the constant pull of the things of the world. Look at what it says. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Now that word to fret uh, really means to burn hot with anger. It means that you see something that seems unjust or something that bothers you. And beyond just seeing it, you begin to feel it in your heart. So you get to get upset about it. You feel this boiling up. It could even mean at times to, to sulk, to get worked up about something. So what David is doing is this. He's seeing the wicked prospering and it bothers him. He's getting mad about it. He gets upset about it. He gets worked up about it. There's some fuel that is put on this fire and he begins to burn with this frustration. And the reason is, verse seven, is because they're prospering. They're doing well, it tells us. Now, this is mentioned over and over. Look at verse seven. Verse seven says, fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way over the man who carries out evil devices. Look at verse eight. Fret not yourself because it tends only to evil. So what happens is, is when we begin to see the prosperity of others or the life of others, and it appears that their life is better than ours, what we begin to do is we begin to compare ourselves to them. What David is gonna show us here is something really, really important about the way this little process begins in our heart, starting with comparison and ending with living a life in which we're seeking the things of the world in order to compete with others who have them. So look at this little process. It does begin there with this idea of comparison, right? So he does say, fret not yourself because of evildoers. So the only reason that verse would be there is because I'm looking at what they have and it bothers me. I'm mad that they have more than I have. I'm upset that they seem to be more blessed than I have, which by the way, even just the thought of that in our heads means that somehow we think we deserve a lot from the Lord when in reality we don't deserve anything from the Lord. But there is this sense of comparison. They've got something that I don't have. But that comparison leads then to coveting. Look at the next verse, or the, the end of verse one. So fret not yourself because of evildoers. Don't compare yourself to others and be not envious of wrongdoing. So it starts with comparison. Here's what they've got. Here's what I've got. I'm upset about it. But then it leads to envying. Envying is that process by which you want something someone else has. It is really a feeling of dissatisfaction. I don't like what I have anymore. I used to, but now that I see what they have, I don't like what I have anymore. I want what they have. Has anyone ever experienced a feeling like that? I loved my house, then I went to their house. Now I hate my house and I want their house. You understand this? This is what he's saying. He's saying, I compared, I let that dwell in my heart just a little bit, and then after I compared, I begin to covet. I begin to envy, and so David says, don't fret, don't compare, and then don't covet, because here's what it's gonna ultimately lead to. It's gonna lead to competition or competing. Look at verse eight. 
Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself because it tends only to evil. So all of a sudden we've gone from the heart to an action. So it begins in verse one in the heart. I compare and then I get frustrated about that and then I covet, I want what they have. And then he says this, if you continue to fret, if you continue to let that dwell in your heart, what's gonna happen? Well, it's going to lead you to doing evil things. You're going to begin changing the way you live and very subtly without even knowing it, competing with them to get what they have or even to get better than they have. Have you ever felt this process in your own heart? I want what they've got, I see it, I deserve more, and then all of a sudden I begin work and work and work so that I'm competing with these people in order that my life be what their life is. So that's what happens, it begins there in verse one. Comparing, coveting, and competing. Now, although David is thinking about this in terms of the wicked and how they're prospering and he's suffering, let's just think about how this might manifest itself in some of our lives. Imagine a teenage girl or a college girl. I'm, not only do I have two teenage daughters, but I'm thinking about all of the uh, young ladies that are about to go off to college. And let's just say that you have really committed yourself to walking in purity with the Lord and you wanna do what's right. And you've read First Peter 3 and you say, okay, Lord, I'm not gonna spend all my energy on external beauty, but I want to cultivate the inner beauty of the heart, which is what First Peter 3 says that we should do. I wanna be adorned with inner beauty. And you just decide you're gonna do this. And here's the problem. As you're deciding to cultivate that inner beauty, you're watching as all of these other girls who don't care about that thing are being promiscuous and they're they're dressing in ways that are inappropriate and they're living in a way that is not right and they're getting all the attention. And it bothers you because you're doing what's right and all of a sudden you realize boys, because they're idiots at that age, don't care that much about inner beauty of the heart and they're kind of captured by all the other stuff and you're wondering, God, I'm doing what's right. And now they're doing all of this and getting all the attention. And if you let that just kind of sink in for a minute, you're not only going to compare, you're going to covet. And if you're not careful, you're going to begin to live a life of competing with them, which will lead you to only ungodliness. Think about a a young man who wants to walk with the Lord and he wants to do what's right and he wants to be honest and be a person of integrity and God's working in his heart. But as soon as he begins to work that way, he goes back to school or to college and he sees that there are a number of guys who are not living that way and they seem to be the ones that are getting ahead and prospering. Or a man who is trying to do what's right in his business and he actually has made a conscious decision at this stage of his life, I'm not gonna sacrifice my family for work. I'm going to make a good and right and healthy decision. But here's a guy over here who's working 90 hours a week and not only is he sacrificing his family, he's doing unethically and he's the one that's getting promotion and winning and that just doesn't seem fair. Or could it even be more subtle than that? Could it be opening up Facebook or any kind of social media or, or Instagram and for just a moment there, seeing someone whose life seems so much better than yours? Their spouse seems better than yours. Their house seems better than yours. Their kids seem better. Everything about their life seems better than yours. And then all of a sudden you find yourself comparing yourself to what you saw and then you begin to covet what they have. And then all of a sudden you might begin to change your life in order to get what they have. This is this comparison trap and David is feeling it. 
And David knows that if you let that moment of comparison start in your heart and do not fight it there, it will then lead all the way to coveting and competing. So the first thing David says is this, what you're feeling right there, listen, is the pull of worldliness. You're feeling this desire to leave the things of the Lord and go to the things of the enemy. You are, you are feeling this desire, this constant inner pull to not walk in holiness any longer because it's hard to walk with Jesus. It's hard to do what is right. And what David says is the first thing you must do if you wanna live as a faithful follower of Jesus in the world with all of this pressure is stop right there at the moment you begin to compare. That's why he begins in verse one with this. Fret not, stop right there. You see it, you start to compare, stop. Don't go any further. Just stop the pull of worldliness. You say, well, well that's it's difficult. I mean, it, it does look as everything they have is better. And then David teaches us in the next verse that we not only need to stop the pull of worldliness, but we need to see the whole picture. Write that down. It's the second point there. We need to see the whole picture. So you're looking at the external, you're only seeing the external, and you're seeing this big prosperity and you're frustrated that they're getting so much good. And David says, okay, I understand that, but let's just stop and let's see what's really going on behind the scenes. I know it looks like success and you're longing for it, but you're not seeing everything. There are 86,400 seconds in a day. 86,400 seconds in a day. So when you go on Instagram or Facebook, you're seeing one second of the 86,400 other seconds of the day. You're seeing one. And what you see in that one is perfection, right? I mean, who knows what they've done to that picture, right? They walk out of the house on the first day of school and they've hated each other inside. Like it's just been all hell's broken loose. And then they go out and everything's just great. And everybody looks so good and put together. And you think, well, my house didn't look like that in the first day. It's just all of this. And all of a sudden you start to think about how much better everybody has it than you. You saw a moment, a moment. And David says this, you're, you're, you're looking at the external. You're not seeing the whole picture. You say, well, what is the whole picture? Well, look at verse two. Don't fret don't be envious, why? For, this is the reason why, they will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. Because they have spent their entire lives in pursuit of the external. They're giving themselves to this world and all the things this world has to offer, but just know this, it's all going to go away. And he says that over and over and over again. So I told you how every verse points back to these. Listen to this, verse nine. For the evildoer will be cut off. Look at verse 13. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. Verse 20, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. Look at verses 35 and 36. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. So this massive, beautiful tree that looks incredibly healthy. And he says, I've seen wicked people who have looked so glorious. Look at verse 36. But he passed away and behold, he was no more. I sought him, but he could not be found. Verse 38, but transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. He's simply over and over saying this. 
He's saying what you see on the outside is only a part of the picture, the whole picture of this. There will be a day in which every single thing they gave their life to is going to go away and they will have nothing because they only lived for this world. So before you envy them, ask yourself this question, is that really the life you wanna live? Is that really the life you wanna live that has this incredible outward perception where everybody thinks your house and your family is incredible? But the reality is, is that you've only lived for that perception and in the end, you really have nothing. I keep thinking about that story in Luke 16 of the rich man and Lazarus. I love this story. I would encourage you to meditate on this later today, but it's the story of a very wealthy man and there's this picture of all of his wealth because he wears purple linen and because he has gates on his house and outside of his home is a poor man, a, a beggar. And every day the beggar just stands there at the rich man's gate and all he asks for is this. There are crumbs that fall off of the rich man's table, not just leftovers, just crumbs, and the dogs eat the crumbs. All the poor man wants is those crumbs. He's just asking if the rich man will gather up those crumbs and bring them out and give them to him, and yet he gets nothing. So in eternity, it tells us that the rich man dies and goes to hell and the poor man dies and goes to heaven. The rich man doesn't go to hell because he's rich and the poor man doesn't go to heaven because he's poor. One trusted Christ and one didn't. But the rich man is there in agony and he's begging for some relief and some help. And it tells us this, the rich man got his good things on earth, but the poor man is getting his good things in eternity. So here's a man whose life seemed unjust. Like, how is it that this man has so much, but the real picture is this, everything this man had is gone, and for all of eternity he has nothing, where this man had nothing, for all of eternity he has something else, something glorious. And so David says you must fight the pull of worldliness, and the way you do that, first of all, is you realize that there's more to the story than you originally thought. Do you really want a life that looks incredible right now, but for all of eternity has nothing? Because here's the truth. Life is short, eternity is long. And those who look like a beautiful, abundant tree will someday be unable to find because everything they live for has faded away. But he says there's more than just that. So you, you have to fight the pull of worldliness, okay? Say, I'm gonna stop this at the moment it gets into my heart and I'm gonna remember that the life that they seem to have is not as glorious as I think it is, that if they've only lived for the world, they're gonna fade away, but then I must do something active as well. And that is verse three, and here it is. We must walk by faith in gospel hope. That is a mouthful that I'm gonna explain. I spent a lot of time making sure those words were right and accurate, Okay. We walk by faith in gospel hope. Get that down. I wanna explain that to you. We walk by faith in gospel hope. So here's basically where we are so far. Stop looking at them and comparing yourself with them. Just stop it right there, okay? Then remind yourself of the real picture that what they have is, is fading and going away. They have lived for this world and it's gonna leave. Now, here's the next thing you must do. You must, verse three, trust in the Lord and do good and dwell in the land and befriend or cultivate faithfulness. I get the feel when I get to verse three of this, of David just saying, all right, I, here's, here's wisdom from an old man that's seen a lot and been around. I've seen a lot of people who seemed glorious but faded away, so here's what I'm saying. Don't worry about them, don't worry about them. Don't, don't get into that competition. Don't get into that comparison, just don't worry about that. What appears glorious is gonna fade away. Here's what you do. You put your head down, you trust in the Lord, 
you be faithful, you do good, you do the right thing, even though it seems as there's no reward for it, and just trust that the Lord will bless it. That's what he says. says, here's what you do. Young girls, young men, businessmen, moms, wives, husbands, singles, here's what you do. You just do what's right. You keep doing good. You cultivate faithfulness. You learn to walk more faithfully with the Lord day by day. And then it tells us throughout this psalm all of the rewards that are there. So think about some of the things it says here. It says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Listen, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. What will he do eventually? He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. The things with the righteous aren't often immediate to be patient. It says in verse nine, those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Verse 18, the Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the day of famine, they will have abundance. Verse 22, for those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. Verse 23, the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong for the Lord upholds his hand. Look at verse 27. Turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice and he will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. Look at verse 34. Wait for the Lord, just wait, hold on. Keep his way, just keep doing good. He will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. Look at the last two verses. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and he saves them because they take refuge in him. Did you notice a common theme with all of those rewards of the righteous? All of them are later. They're all later. Now there are great benefits to walking to the Lord with the Lord now. I have told you over and over that walking with Jesus is the best of all possible lives in a broken world. I believe that without question. I believe the moment you come to know the Lord, you begin to get little tastes of joy and you begin taste of his kingdom. That's what we get. We begin to know what it's like to walk in intimacy with the Lord and that is good and it is right and it is filled with goodness and joy. I also know this that the wicked person gets their best life now while the righteous person always gets their best life later. The righteous get their best life later. This is the core of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. We believe that there is greater reward for us later. And so what do we do? Well, we dwell in the land. We cultivate faithfulness. We live by faith in the Lord because we believe there's something better even though I don't see it right now. This, this, is, this is what it means to walk with Jesus, that we believe there's something better. And the reason we believe that is because it's rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I say we want to walk by faith and gospel hope. Let me, let me explain that. Listen carefully. So the gospel is the story that we were sinners separated from God because of our sin, God loving us and wanting to restore a right relationship between us and himself since his son, Jesus Christ. His son, Jesus Christ, comes from glory. He descends and he walks in humility. He becomes a servant even though he was a king. He is despised and rejected by men. 
He is unnoticed by many. He is hated and many. He is not appearing physically what he is in reality, which means over and over, everyone was looking at him and despising him and not seeing his glory. John 1, we beheld his glory, but they did not see his glory. So what did he do? Well, he lived this life and he suffered and he died a criminal's death for our sins. He was buried and it appeared that all of his life was a waste. And at the end of that, he rose from the dead, displaying that he was in fact the promised Messiah. He then ascends to the right hand of the Father where he was ruling and reigning over all things. But here's the life of Jesus, humility, service, suffering, death, and then resurrection. Now listen very carefully to this, very carefully. When we come to believe the gospel, we not only believe that the only way my sins can be taken care of is if I call upon the name of the Lord and ask him to save me, but at the moment we do that, we not only believe the gospel, we begin to live the gospel. You gotta get this, we begin to live the gospel. What does that mean? Well, that means every day of our life is a picture of the life of Jesus. I die to myself, I choose humility, I choose service, and I believe that when I choose to die that way, I actually experience the life of Christ. So death is the way to life. And that's true not only throughout our lives, but every moment of the day. So what I'm saying is we walk by faith and gospel hope, meaning this, Hope is the belief that the best is yet to come, that if I will suffer and sacrifice for the Lord, I will receive something greater on the other side of that. So what I'm saying is we walk by faith, believing that what God says is true and what God says is this, if you will do good, cultivate faithfulness, walk with Jesus, even though you might not see the fullness of the blessing now, you will get it later. That's the way in which we live with Jesus. That's the way in which we cultivate faithfulness and walk with the Lord day after day and moment by moment. Let me just tell you a little personal story. In 1999, I discovered by God's grace this truth which changed the way I fought sin and changed the way I was willing to make sacrifices and stays with me every day. And here's what it was. It comes from Psalm 37 and a thousand other places. I just see it so much in Psalm 37. Here it is. Our motive for staying married, our motive for saying no to sin, our motive for sacrificing for the cause of Christ, our motive for being willing to be despised because of our relationship with Jesus Christ and to be overlooked because of our relationship with Jesus Christ is not a sense of duty, meaning it's not because Jesus died for you, therefore the least you can do is walk with him. Jesus bled on the cross for you. You can't even wake up 30 minutes earlier. How many of you have heard stuff like that? Our whole life we hear this. Listen, he suffered and died and bled. He got nails through his hands. You can't even pray for five minutes. That kind of motivation does not lead to delight in the Lord. It leads to a sense of duty and will ultimately never be enough. Let me tell you the biblical motive for obedience and fighting sin, it is this. This is, this is difficult, but I'm gonna choose to say no to sin right now because I believe by saying no to sin, there's something better for me over here. I'm gonna stay married and I'm gonna work on this and I'm gonna cultivate this, why? Because I believe there's something better on the other side. It is me walking by faith in gospel hope. There's something better. Obedience is better, there's a greater reward. 
I could give you a thousand examples of this, but I think Hebrews 11 is a great one. It says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. God, you promised me something better, so I'm gonna walk as if that's true. I'm gonna live for the next life because there's something better. And then listen to this example. Listen to this. Hebrews eleven twenty four. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Remember, he was found by Pharaoh's daughter. Everything in Pharaoh's house belonged to him, but he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing, he made a choice, rather to be mistreated with the people of God. So he said, I could have this, but I'm gonna choose something different. I'm gonna choose to be mistreated with the people of God. Rather than enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. So I would rather suffer with the people of God than have all the treasures of Egypt. Listen, why? For he was looking for the reward. What motivated Moses to say, I'm gonna not choose all of this that appears glorious, but instead choose reproach because he believed there was a reward. Do you know this is what Jesus did? For the joy set before him. He despised the cross and experienced the shame. Why? Because he believed there was joy on the other side of it. That's what motivates you to fight sin. That's what motivates you to walk faithfully with Jesus Christ because you believe that there is something better for those who are faithful. And what's gonna happen is everyone around you is gonna seem like they have so much more, but you're gonna have to remind yourself that what they have will not last. And although it seems like you are the lesser, you will be the greater. This is what Jesus means when he says, if you will die, you will live. If you will give up your life, you will find real life. Because we're living for gospel hope. We're living for something we believe is better. But the last little part I wanna see you see is this. So we basically resist that pull of worldliness, verse one. We then see the whole picture, verse two. And then in verse three, we walk by faith in future hope. But the final thing is this, and I'll be done. Look at verse four. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. The last thing I would say is this, is pursue joy in Jesus. Please get this, pursue joy in Jesus. This is the last but the foundation, if you look in your Bible, look at verse four as holding up verses three, two, and one. So it's holding it up. So, so what does this look like practically? What it looks like practically is this, is that pursue intimacy with Jesus because you believe Jesus is better. Find your joy and satisfaction in Jesus. Make Jesus your greatest treasure. So see this, I wish I had it, I want that. Wait a minute, no I don't. What is the greatest treasure is Jesus, so I'm gonna go after him. I'm gonna grab onto him. Delight yourself in the Lord is a command to make Jesus your greatest pursuit, to make Jesus the thing that you want the most. It's a practical man. Go after Jesus, spend time in his word, be around his people, go after Jesus. And as you go after Jesus and make him your delight, he begins to then change your heart so the things you used to want so badly, you don't want near as much and you now want the things that matter and that last. You say, well, why don't, why don't I want the things that matter and last? Why is my heart being so pulled away? Well, I would say at the beginning, it's probably because you're not delighting in the Lord. You're not pursuing him. And when you're not pursuing him and delighting in him, everything else looks better than him. But when you're delighting yourself in the Lord, nothing looks better than him. <laughs> nothing looks better. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you realize that he's better than everything else in the world. 
As I was preparing the sermon, I kept thinking about that old hymn. You may remember it, Standing on the Promises. Remember that? Standing on the promises of Christ, my King, through eternal ages, let his praises ring. Glory in the highest, I will shout and sing, standing on the promises of God. That's exactly what we're talking about here. We're saying this, I'm going to root myself in this promise. That because I've been united by faith with Christ, and because the gospel story is my story, I'm going to stand on the confidence that there are greater things for me if I will choose to walk with Jesus. And I will say no to the passing pleasures of sin. And I will say no to the constant pull of the world. Why? Because I believe there's a greater reward. And I'm gonna spend my whole life standing on the promises of God that what he has for me is better than what the world has for me. I'm gonna stand right here. And I will give glory and sing that there's a greater reward for those who persevere in faith. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.